Section 70 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Duchepec. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. The Pope, His Prerogative of Infallibility. Objection. To err is human. All men are subject to error, and the Pope is no exception. Is not the dogma of papal infallibility a deification of the Pope? The answer. The strong feeling against papal infallibility outside the Catholic Church is due in great part to lack of correct information about the doctrine. A clear and simple explanation of the dogma should be enough to remove the antipathy felt toward it on the score of its supposed unreasonableness. The historical arguments in its favor we have virtually given in the article on the primacy. For the sake of clearness and simplicity, we shall cast the discussion into the form of a dialogue between a Catholic and a non-Catholic. The latter, we shall suppose, is an honest inquirer who has already learned much from his interlocutor and is willing to learn more, but at the same time is frank in setting forth his objections. Non-Catholic I have been longing to come to the discussion of the doctrine of papal infallibility. Although, as you must be aware, few Protestants can approach the subject in a state of perfect equanimity. The Pope, fallible or infallible, is our great bugaboo, and the climax is reached when the Pope is placed on a pinnacle by being declared free from human error. Catholic, why then are you so eager to take up the subject? Non-Catholic, I have had a taste of it which has whetted my appetite. The fact is, I have reached a turning point in my thoughts about the sovereign pontiff. These few weeks past, I have been studying the evidences of the Pope's primacy, and now I must acknowledge, I see the Pope in a new light. Though it is still difficult for me to regard the Pope simply from the Catholic standpoint, nevertheless, after weighing the evidence adducted from Scripture, the Fathers, and the early councils, and the arguments aiming to prove the necessity of a primacy of authority and the actual possession of it by the popes as the successors of St. Peter, it seems to me that I can never again regard the pope as the spiritual usurper that I have always believed him to be. At the very least, I am convinced that the pope occupies a very exceptional position among the rulers of God's church. Catholic. I am gratified, of course, to learn that another point of Catholic doctrine is being cleared up. But I must remind you that it is possible for a student of early tradition to get an entirely different impression of the teaching of the Fathers on the Pope's position. If you dropped into an Anglican or an Evangelical school of divinity, you might find the professor of apologetics citing passages from the Fathers to prove that the Pope has not a particle of authority 
more than the other bishops. You are naturally surprised at this after seeing the overwhelming mass of evidence in favor of the primacy. Yet it is not after all so surprising that in so large a mass of writings, clever minds should find material for bolstering up a case against the papal prerogative. But the attempt is futile in the face of the grand array of testimonies on the Catholic side. So impressive by reason of their number, their clearness, their emphasis, and above all by reason of the highly representative character of those who have rendered them. The testimony of a single great council must far outweigh a comparatively few citations, which can often be explained in a Roman Catholic sense, and no less often can be matched from the very same sources by passages which are Romanist as any Roman Catholic could desire. Non-Catholic The representative character on many witnesses to the primacy does seem to add much weight to the argument. But a point I have been wishing to come to is that, in seeking proofs of the primacy, I have found a good deal that bears on infallibility. In many cases in which the supreme headship of the Bishop of Rome was spoken of, the inerrancy of his teaching seemed to be either expressed or implied. Am I right in this interpretation? Catholic Yes, you are perfectly right. The Fathers and the Councils are clear and emphatic in declaring infallibility of teaching to be an element of the primacy. Non-Catholic And yet, when I began to realize the fact, I could not bring myself to believe that the Fathers and the Councils were teaching the precise doctrine taught by the Catholic Church today. Catholic I should like to feel sure that your conception of the Catholic teaching of today is the right one. Non-Catholic Well, to save time, I will tell you that I have long since unlearned some of the false ideas of infallibility, which I must confess, are still entertained by many of my co-religionists. Such, for instance, as that infallibility means impeccability that the Pope cannot sin, or in general, that everything the Pope does must be right. Catholic I should certainly have credited you with better notions than that. But how would you describe your own impression of papal infallibility? Non-Catholic I should suppose that what the Catholic Church means by infallibility is that when the Pope speaks on matters of religion, his word is law. He cannot be wrong, and everyone must think him right. Catholic But wouldn't you distinguish? I hope you don't suppose that every utterance of the Pope, in public or in private, on matters of religion, is infallible. Non-Catholic I have never attempted to analyze my impressions about that matter. But if I had, I should probably have found myself supposing that a vicar of Christ endowed with infallibility could never on any occasion give utterance to erroneous doctrine. Catholic, 
and that possibly in any private conversation, he might be dropping infallible remarks at every turn. Non-Catholic? Well, possibly so. You smile. Catholic? Well, we shall clear up that point at a later stage of the discussion. Suffice it to say, just here, that so far as the Catholic dogma goes, the Pope is infallible only when he speaks in his public and official character and as head of the Church. What objection have you to the head of the Church laying down the law in matters of religion without any danger of error? Non-Catholic I should be delighted to know that the head of the Church was infallible in his public teachings, as I should be delighted to have an infallible guide in any department of thought or knowledge. And as you are aware, I have been struck by the historical argument in favor of papal infallibility. But my repugnance comes to the surface when I confine my attention to the human depository of the gift of infallibility. The Pope is, after all, a poor mortal like ourselves. Like the rest of us, he has his knowledge out of books, and he is not necessarily the greatest theologian in the world. Even if he were, it would be difficult to see how his teaching would be anything more than the expression of his personal opinions. Catholic But it is not to his personal opinions that infallibility attaches, but to his official declarations. Non-Catholic Ah, but isn't that a distinction without a practical difference? The Pope's official declarations, I should suppose, are the sincere expression of the Pope's own mind. Hence, his official declarations have just as much or as little value as his personal opinions. Catholic You have put it very neatly. And if the subject on the tapis were any other than papal infallibility, you certainly would have struck home. But there is a decidedly weak point in your argument. Is it not conceivable that no matter what be the sources of a man's knowledge, no matter how erroneous his private opinions, he may be guarded by a special providence from making certain public utterance? The Pope's infallibility means simply this, at least so far as our present controversy is concerned, that whatever be the private views of the Pope, he will always be preserved by a special providence from teaching error when exercising his functions as head of the universal church. Personally and privately, it is possible for him to hold erroneous views on the essentials of the faith, though that would be a very exceptional thing. But a special providence will never permit any such views to enter into his public official dogmatic utterances. No Christian can doubt that God has it in his power thus to preserve his church from error by means of a special divine guardianship over the official pronouncements of the one place at its head. And the one thus guarded is not made more human, and especially is he not deified by any such divine protection. Your argument, 
then amounts to this. Given a certain official declaration of the Pope, it has no more value than the personal opinion of which it is an expression, and personal opinion is subject to error. The Catholic position is this. Given an erroneous personal opinion of the Pope, it will never find an expression in any official declaration in consequence of the action of an overruling providence. Non-Catholic, that, I must admit, throws considerable light on the subject, but I must let the matter mature in my thoughts before giving full assent. Meantime, I must admit, I can see no reason why God could not so order things as to prevent the Pope from teaching erroneous doctrine. Catholic, indeed, to say that he could not would be a reflection on his wisdom and his omnipotence. But the idea will find easier admittance into your mind if you will recollect that God has, as a matter of fact, conferred infallibility on certain individual men for the good of his church. Why can he not do the same in the case of the one who rules the church in his name? Non-Catholic. So there are other cases of infallibility. I must say, I am getting a little jealous in the Pope's behalf. Catholic, you are a Christian, and as such, you must believe that the Twelve Apostles were infallible in their public teaching, as they had special promise of the assistance of the Holy Ghost. The same is true of the four evangelists in their written message to the Church. Non-Catholic. That's an idea which I have never had brought home to me, especially in connection with papal infallibility. The apostles and evangelists were certainly infallible in their message to the Church of God. But am I to understand that the Pope is endowed with the same high gifts and graces as the apostles and evangelists? Catholic. Not precisely or at least not necessarily. In the case of the Pope, so far as we know, it is simply a case of a special providence guarding the public and official utterance of the head of the Church. It is not a matter of personal inspiration. The Pope hears no voice from on high telling him that the decision he is about to render is God's own truth nor is it a matter of miraculous intervention of any kind. It is simply a case of an overruling providence. Non-Catholic I must say, the question is considerably cleared up. At the very least, you have supplied me with matter for profound reflection. It takes a little time to assimilate a new idea of the kind, but I must admit that it all seems very reasonable. There is nothing godlike implied in the prerogative of the sovereign pontiff. All seems very human on the side of the human agency employed by providence. But now there are some points in detail I should like to have cleared up. And I must confess, my curiosity is more excited here than it was in reference to the main point. 
I should like to learn more precisely when, how often, and under what circumstances the gift of infallibility is brought into exercise. What more precisely are the limits of infallibility? And how can we distinguish between a fallible and an infallible utterance of the Pope? As to these last questions, you have placed particular emphasis on such expressions as public and official, as qualifying papal declaration to which infallibility is attached. Catholic, I have used these expressions only provisionally. They are correct except for some limitation and greater precision which are given them by the Vatican decree, which I shall point out to you presently. Non-Catholic, the first thing I am eager to learn is whether infallible pronouncements are of frequent occurrence. Catholic, I expected the question. You seem not averse to admitting the dogma of infallibility, but like many another inquirer, you feel a jealousy of too frequent an invasion of human liberty, even under the action of a special providence. Now I am not going to ask you to be the temper of Dr. Ward, the famous Oxford convert of some years back, who declared he should be delighted to find an infallible papal decree laid upon his breakfast table with his newspaper every morning of his life. On the other hand, I should be sorry to see you take up the attitude of a number, an exceedingly small number, even of the Pope's subjects, who are fidgety at the thought of important papal pronouncements of any kind. In the whole history of the Church, infallible decrees have doubtless been of frequent occurrence, though here there can be no question of the statistics. The Sea of Rome has been the guiding star of the Church these 19 centuries. Catholics have received its decisions without inquiring narrowly into the limits of their infallibility. When necessary or expedient, the certainty of infallibility can be assured by a clear and distinct declaration. In the general course of papal government, the Pope employs the aid of those standing committees of cardinals known as congregations. The decisions of these bodies are frequent enough but even if they be issued with the Pope's approval, they are not infallible. They may be reversed, though such is the maturity of the Cardinal's deliberations. You have heard the saying that Rome moves slowly, and such the wisdom of their decisions. That is the rarest thing in the world for any of their rulings to need reversal. But occasions will occur when the Pope feels impelled to issue, in virtue of his sovereign authority, a document which, from its terms or its draft, must be deemed infallible and irreversible. These may be said to be of comparatively rare occurrence. Non-Catholic, that, I must say, does bring some relief to my Protestant susceptibilities. Nevertheless, I must admit that I, as am now more than half a Catholic, as regards infallibility, the fact that I need such comfort may be no great credit to me, 
I wonder if I shall ever fall into Ward's breakfast table cravings. But I see you have there what I suppose is the Vatican decree on the infallibility of the Pope. Catholic The decree bearing on infallibility is part of a long constitution. I shall translate it almost verbatim on paper, and at the same time number off certain clauses by way of giving prominence to the conditions under which the Pope is declared to be infallible in his teaching. The words are these. Therefore, adhering to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, for the glory of God our Savior, for the exaltation of the Catholic religion and the salvation of Christian people, with the approval of the Sacred Council, we teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that the Roman Pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the discharge of his office of pastor and teacher of all Christians, he defines, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, a doctrine relating to faith or morals, as one to be held by the universal church he possesses by virtue of the divine assistance promised to him in the person of blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine Redeemer willed that his church should possess in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. The first thing to be noted about the decree is that it is only when the Pope speaks ex cathedra that he is declared to be infallible. The literal meaning of ex cathedra is from his chair of office. The theological meaning of the phrase is set forth with the greatest exactness by the Council. The Pope is infallible when he speaks in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority and when in discharge of his office of pastor and teacher of all Christians. He defines a doctrine and sends it forth as one to be held by the whole Church. These conditions are important as they limit the range of infallible teaching. A papal utterance may be more or less public, but that does not necessarily stamp it as infallible. It is only when the Church evidently wishes to exercise his apostolic authority as head of the Church and to define a doctrine to be held as so defined by the whole Church that he is declared to be infallible. Note in the second place that it is only in defining doctrine that the Pope is pronounced infallible and not therefore in matters of external discipline or administration. Moreover, it must be doctrine bearing on faith or on morals. The world need fear no explaining of the Pope's prerogative in the domain of politics or of science or of history. Interference in these matters does not belong to the Pope's province as head of the Church, except in so far as they have bearings on faith or morals. The word defining is not used here in the ordinary English sense of the word, as equivalent to giving the meaning of, but in the sense of declaring explicitly and authoritatively. All doctrines taught infallibly have been implicitly contained 
in the original deposits of the faith, all with perhaps no exception, have been explicitly held and acted upon by large portions of the Church. Some, like the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope, have been implied and embodied in the practice of the universal Church from the beginning. And yet the time had not come for their explicit and definitive declaration. But when a pressing or at least suitable occasion has occurred, the true status of such doctrines have been clearly set forth by the sovereign pontiff. It is clear then that in the exercise of this prerogative, there is not springing of new ideas on the church, no manufacturing of dogmas out of the whole cloth. As to the divine assistance enjoyed by the pontiff, in virtue of the promise made to him in the person of St. Peter, neither the English expression nor the Latin original implies any special or personal inspiration or any kind of miraculous intervention. It is a matter of special divine guardship over the dogmatic utterances of the head of the Church. The Vatican decree exhibits one of the special ways in which providence has guided the destinies of the Church as the custodian of revealed truth. The Church of Christ is infallible in its teaching, otherwise it would not be worthy of its name. Christ has commanded us to hear it and has promised it the spirit of truth, and hence it can teach no error. But it must teach as a unit, and hence it must have a principle of unity. There must be a standard of right doctrine to which the whole world may appeal. That such a standard of truth has been preserved in the Sea of Rome has been the belief of the Church from the beginning, and the belief has been embodied in the acts of the most vital consequence to the Church. God might have ordered things differently. By a great miracle, He might have preserved the faith with a simple transmission of revealed truths from one Christian to another. Or he might have confirmed in the faith all bishops in succeeding ages, as he had done in the case of the apostles, and thus have made each bishop a virtual pope. In that case, there would be no need of general councils as regards matters dogmatic. Or he might have ordained that the general assembly of the bishops should be the ultimate referee in all matters of faith and morals. In this last case, if the Pope were eliminated, another miracle would be needed to make such a body of bishops effective without a head. If a presiding officer were chosen, it is impossible that his rulings, or his decisions, or his casting vote should not directly or indirectly affect the decrees of the assembly in matters of faith and morals, and thus he would be virtually Pope. And who but a sovereign pontiff, universally recognized as such, would be competent to determine the conditions under which the decisions of such an assembly would be infallible? Who, for instance, could decide what degree of unanimity was necessary to stamp a decree as final and infallible? As a matter of fact, 
The church's councils have never been troubled by questions like these because there never was a time when the presidency, the decisions, and the consent of the bishop of bishops were not considered as putting the seal of apostolic sanction upon the acts of the council. General councils, with the Pope or his delegate at their head, have been great instruments for good in the hands of providence. But a council is an instrument that cannot always be brought to bear upon situations fraught with danger to faith or morals. During the era of persecution in the early church, an interval of nearly three centuries elapsed between the founding of the church and the first ecumenical council held at Nicaea in 325. During the 43 years that have passed since the Vatican Council was obliged to discontinue its sitting, a most baneful heresy has arisen. But during this and all such periods, the flock of Christ has not been without its shepherd. God has not chosen the way of the miraculous for the preservation of the faith of his church. He has appointed a visible head, the successor of Peter, to whom he has vouchsafed a special assistance to enable him to guide the church aright. Under the direction of this special providence, the Vicar of Christ employs every possible human means to ascertain the truth. Aided by his high position and by the combined learning of Christendom, he is enabled to take up threads of tradition and weave them into the continuous strand of apostolic teaching. All seems very human when we confine our gaze to the work of the human instrument employed by providence, but faith reveals the presence of the guiding hand. Non-Catholic During this exposition of the Catholic doctrine, which you have had the kindness to develop for me, the idea has been gradually growing in my mind that the divine character of the Church and its consequent perfection are perhaps but nothing better illustrated than by the doctrine of the papal primacy and infallibility. I am now forming a conception of a Church which never dawned upon my mind before. The divine conserving element in the Church is taking the place in my thoughts of that idea of a church which made of it no more than an assembly of minds more or less in agreement about certain truths. Minds relying, it may be, on the personal guidance of the Holy Spirit, and yet ever tending to follow the most divergent paths. Papal infallibility, I must acknowledge, has captured my intellect. Maybe it will soon have my heart, though perhaps I shall always be at a little distance from Dr. Ward's enthusiasm for papal decrees. End of section 70. The Pope, His Prerogative of Infallibility. Recording by Tony Ducepec.